Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everybody. Welcome to Dose Nation. I'm your host, Jay Kettle. Thanks for joining us. With me, as always, is founder of DoseNation.com and uh, co-host of the podcast and also author of Psychedelic Information Theory. If you haven't read it, get a copy of it. James Kent. James, how are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks, Jake. Yeah. Uh, we've been on a break for a few weeks. I had to take a hiatus for some uh, minor health issues. Just had to get away from the computer. I was doing, a, you know, as I do in my life from time to time, I get really busy and I spend so much time at the computer, I forget that it is really not healthy for me to be sitting at the computer all day. And my back starts to seize up and my shoulders start to seize up and my arms become sore and numb. And I start to get migraine headaches. So when that happens to me, I need to take a few weeks off the computer. And uh, I just had to, uh, you know, take a break. And uh, fortunately, Jake was here to uh, to watch Dose Nation while I was out. And uh, we got an episode of the podcast out. And we've been keeping up on Facebook, etc. So thanks, Jake. Uh, and, don't, uh, don't, don't thank me too much. <laughs> and uh, without you, Jake, you know, we would probably be on hiatus for a lot longer. So... <laughs> I don't know about that, but uh, you know, I I I I I try to keep things up, in, in you know, whenever James has things going on, so um, you know, and also feel free to contact us at contact.dosenation.com if you want to uh, write into us. That's how you can get yeah, in check in and see what the status of the show is because we haven't been coming out regularly for the last couple of weeks or um, on Wednesdays in particular, but uh, it's uh, we're trying to we're trying to get back on that regular schedule now that we're back from break. I also wanted to mention that we have a new person editing the show. Do you want to give a shout out to our uh, new yeah, editor? Yeah, I want to give a big, uh, big shout out to our new editor Nick, and uh, he's uh, he's he's been editing our our uh, he edited the last show, and he's going to be editing this show, and hopefully our most of our future shows. And uh, he's our uh, new editor, so I want to give him a shout out. And uh, if you somehow see him anywhere in the comment section, or you have, in any way interact with him at all just make sure you give him a big thank you because he helps yeah and us he's out. doing this to uh to pick up for uh slack uh because uh you know my time is limited and jake's time is limited and he's volunteering so if you notice a little uh audio quality is slightly different that's because he's just he's just getting into it so uh so hopefully uh we'll have that all streamlined that process will be streamlined and uh and, and more efficient in the next and I apologize if there were publishing problems because I had some uh, some some issues with that initially. <laughs> but uh, no, we're all we're all good. I James, think we're I think we've got it all sorted out now. So. No, no, no. Yeah, well, that's a little bit after, of a structural change while I was out for a couple of weeks, and uh, we're back now. Yeah. And it's good to be back. So um, we let me, got a lot of comments in the interim. We also got some donations. I think being yes. off the air for a few weeks spurred people to donate us. I wanted to give a. Big thanks to Neil H., who has been a supporter of, uh, I, sense all, I think, all the way back to, to Trip Magazine. He's been a supporter of uh, work that I've done. I've known Neil for a long time. He sent a big PayPal payment in, and uh, we got another PayPal subscription from a regular listener whose name I don't have up now, but uh, I also wanted to thank them. And uh, all of those donations and uh, PayPal PayPal donations, click-throughs, comments on the site. They uh, really keep us focused on making this happen every week. So that's what you got to do to keep us keep us coming back to the microphone. That's what you got to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and, and the other thing is that uh, we, we really do appreciate the donations. It helps with things like equipment. It helps with things like uh, just general management um, 
and stuff like that. So, um, I so so we do thank you for that. And uh, also, you know, uh, if you want to, there are, there are other ways that you can support. Like James said, the Amazon click throughs basically were entirely viewer supported. Um, um, network at the moment, uh, you know, with, except for with the click through. So if, uh, you know, if you buy your stuff from Amazon, go through our website if you're willing, because that will be very, very helpful. <laughs> and, uh, and we appreciate it, but we do have a, we do have a hell of a lot of viewer comments that, that, that we need to address. Oh, one other thing I wanted to mention okay. is we've also just started experimenting with running, um, banner ads on the website. We have some banners in the right column, some, some graphic ads in the right column. For, you know, um, things like uh, food or um, I can't remember what they are. There's some chocolate. There's coffee. Um, you can, you know, click. Through. You don't have to order anything. Go ahead and click through and see what it's all about. We only get paid if you order something. So uh, Christmas is coming up. If you want to buy somebody chocolate, you can click through the, the chocolate banner. If you want to buy somebody coffee, we're going to have some coffee sponsors in the, in the coming weeks. So um, that would be another way to support us. That really is kind of invisible to you. You're just buying a gift for a friend, and we get a little piece of it. So, right, pretty and, much. And you know, those advertisers have been kind enough to agree to advertise on a page associated with you know legal substance use, and you know they're selling coffee and chocolate and and uh, beer and wine and stuff like that. So they they know what's going on. Yeah, and actually, uh, I'm I'm taking a look at wine.com right now, and uh, go buy a bo- go, go buy a bottle of wine because. Uh, I got to uh, the, the only click through the wine.com banner on dosenation.com uh check yeah, out a check bottle out of their, wine. Yeah, check out their selection because I there I I'm I'm and I and I'll say this now, I'm not a big drinker at all. But um the one one thing I I do drink and I'm very interested in is wine and beer because there's an art, there's a craft to making it and liqueur as well, though I don't really like the taste, but <laughs> but uh yeah, no, wine is wine is good. So definitely uh check check that out. Uh, that was one of the more interesting ones that I found. So uh, on on the site, so definitely check that out if you get the opportunity. But um, other than the click through ads, we do have a lot of viewer comments that I wanted to to get to. Some of which are addressed to you, some of which are addressed to me. Um, and we're going to read them, and we're going to talk about them, and uh, we're going to uh, get your comments on. So first, uh, Nowhere Girl was the first person to post on the latest podcast and they and, and she asks us why do why do you publish exclusively podcasts now i strongly prefer reading to listening and i regret that there's absolutely nothing new to read here well nowhere girl has been following dose nation since we started and she i think was one of our biggest fans and one of our biggest commenters for a long time and she always had very um interesting things to say and strong opinions and i'm glad that she's writing in about the podcast the reason that we're not doing daily blog material is just because it became um, it became overwhelming for for the editors to do it on a daily basis, considering the fact that we were it was all volunteer. Um, we were only doing it, you know, for fun, and we reached a point where we all who had started the the blog on a daily basis had kind of moved on to other projects, and we couldn't keep the blog up on a daily basis. So then we were updating it. You know, once a week, and then it was once every two weeks, and then it just sort of sat there. And so, the blog went on a, on on you know semi permanent hiatus about a year ago, and there was nothing happening until Jake approached me and said, "Hey, let's do a podcast." And I said, "Well, that sounds a lot easier than you know doing daily blog posts, so that let's do that instead." 
So that's what we've been doing. Um, I don't really have the time to sit and write daily blog posts every day. Um, if there are people who do want to submit daily blog posts, we will still accept them. Um, it's just that the content in the, you know, the psychedelic um, news field is, I don't want to say it's pretty thin, but it is pretty thin. And a lot of that, a lot of that news is covered by other places like Huffington Post now. Um, you know, or the Guardian. Whereas when we started Dose Nation, that the, those kind of stories were really hard to come by, and we had to like, like go digging for them every day to find them. Now, now that stuff is almost mainstream, and it seems redundant to just be uh, posting links to stuff to, that you can find on Reddit or 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 whatever. So, the podcast is something that we can do, which is you know individualized. It's easy. Uh, it's easy for listeners, and um, you know. If if you really like reading stuff every day, then uh, you know there's there's plenty of other places that are doing doing written analysis. Not only that, but you can read James' book too. And uh, when <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, but, but uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, and I try to you know I try to write. I still try to write uh, topically in this field, but I try to get paid for it now. You know, through through High Times and other venues, and uh, spending all my time on the blog writing for for free, basically. Is just not. It's just not productive for me at, at this time, because it's a, you know, it was it was sort of a labor of love, and uh, it just it burned me out after a while. So, yeah, and, and the other thing is that you know, like like James had mentioned, um, he doesn't have time to do it. I don't have time to do it. Um, yeah, we've tried. I mean, we've tried to get back in the saddle, but really, compiling a good blog post could take you know an hour out of your morning. I mean, just doing the research and making sure that that you're not saying something that's that you're going to have to come back the next day and say, "Oops, sorry, that was wrong." <laughs> right. So because that became a big problem with Dose Nation, you figure, "Oh, this is just a fun blog that we're going to do, and we're going to post links to you know videos and goofy stories and make wisecracks." But then we have to come back in a couple of days and say, oh, we found out that this story was bogus or we reported wrongly on this. Or there's like a flame war that erupts in the comment section and you become part of, you know, <laughs> part of managing the politics of of information becomes more of the job than actually writing the fun little witty blog posts that you like to write. Right. It then becomes the, <laughs> right. It then becomes the management, which is like oh, yeah, the God. management of the information and the politics of does what we're posting meet our editorial guidelines, and will people take this the wrong way? And you know, it's you know the editorial decisions in blog posting, especially if people are linking back to you as an authority, it becomes a full time job. It does just fact checking yourself and making sure that you're not you're not producing more disinformation and garbage. So I I. Speaking of disinformation garbage, I wanted to <laughs> I wanted to read the next comment, which I did uh, respond to, but I'll respond to it in the actual podcast now. This is from Our Method is Science. He says, this is a very misleading title for, the, for this podcast, and it seems to have been intentionally disingenuous since the discussion oh, itself. Oh, is this the... the um Evangelical psychedelic chemist. Yeah, right. Since it's yeah, I saw that I was confused by that title too, but I didn't. I I just kind of shrugged it off. I didn't think anybody was going to be offended by it. Po yeah, right. Popular episodes that are the, that are that are the um, that are the ones that spotlight psychedelics. Other topics clearly predominate. Yes, other topics clearly predominate. But it was I think it was something like eight o'clock in the morning. I was trying to get this uh, this, this 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 podcast finalized and put up. 
and um you know my uh, and sometimes it's hard to title these episodes because yeah, we're talking about all kinds of stuff so 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 what is the title was i being intentionally disingenuous no it was eight o'clock in the morning i hadn't had any coffee and i said screw it evangelical psychedelic chemist that's what we're gonna call the episode and that's what I put it out as. So now, if you would like us to do some interviews with actual evangelical psychedelic chemists, maybe we can set that up. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you, you know, were, if you were seriously disappointed. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, if that's really what you were looking for, we can we can do that. But I don't I don't know any, so um, <laughs> we'll have to dig them up. Yeah, we're gonna I have think to. I, I think I may be able to find one or two. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, the, well, then maybe we'll be able to dig a few up. Then we can do an episode that is properly titled, since it, you know, if it's that big of a bother. But, <laughs> you know, I mean, again, like I said, some of these episodes are just titled because, you know, if we'll we're be not, more careful, we'll be more careful in the future. How about that? Uh, we won't, we won't right. title a podcast, um, you know, naked cheerleaders on acid, and then have it be about um, the Pope or something. <laughs> <laughs> Well, no, it, it, it wasn't even like the episode was about the Pope. It was about, <laughs> it was about, it was about like evangel. I, I, I believe that was the episode that I talked about. I remember. I think we. I was talking about gun control for a part of that episode. And yeah, you, and, yeah, you were. And, and then and the shooting at the um, the Navy Yard. And actually, there was another shooting that took place place in Nebraska. Uh, not well, yeah, that too, was that was a junior junior high school. That's that's just awful, awful yeah. stuff. How many were hurt in that incident? Do you I know? just, I think, just two. A teacher was killed, and a, and a student was wounded. I believe that's terrible. That's terrible. Yeah, the teacher was killed. I, I don't know the details of it, but uh, you know, our thoughts and prayers goes out to the to the families of those people. Um. But, so what's what else is in the comments? Section? Yeah, but I but and again, and I want to make this point. It was not intentionally disingenuous. I do want to no, throw no, no. that out there. I mean, it really wasn't. That's that's not our goal. Um, and trust me, if I wanted to market things, I would market it a hell of a lot better than that. Um, <laughs> okay, so now we're going to move on to Davy, uh, who actually posted a couple of comments. Um. Hi, all. I was expecting a different subject matter when I read Evangelical Psychedelic Chemists. Again, a problem with the title. I apologize. Uh, I've wondered at times why a mass dosing has never occurred. Definitely there are people who go through a period of believing we all need to be forcibly turned on. But this, like most conspiracy theories, um, belies an overly simplified view of life. I think it was called uh, immunitizing, sorry, immunitizing, um, the the eschaton oh immunitizing the eschaton the, uh, yeah I immunitizing the uh, eschaton okay, in the illuminatus trilogy a fundamentalist fish christian faction pursue it with red cow breeding programs and god knows what other forms of of wackiness still the chemistry behind such a weapon of nasty programming is readily available it's almost surprising it is uh, it, uh, that it's never been attempted i certainly would never endorse this i'd say the moral compass the deep uh, contact with one's own mind would tend to protect society from this kind of psychic terrorism. But then I have a, a wild-eyed head spray me. But but then but then I have had a wild-eyed head spray me with a bottle, claiming it contained LSD and DSMO. Nothing happened, but I did make clear to him that his actions were motivated by anger, not compassion. Like, All right, the, can we can we break here and, and yeah, talk okay. about the subject? Okay. Um, now, I have heard of a couple instances of um, weaponized hallucinogens being tested um, on, on, on military platoons. 
uh, not whole platoons, but I'm sorry, um, uh, military tr- groups, groups in, of, of military and, um, soldiers involved in training exercises. There is a rumor that the CIA released a hallucinogenic weapon in France at some time in the 70s. And I think if you Google France, CIA, LSD uh, weapon, you'll probably find, um, I, I can't remember the name of the town or the incident, but uh, I have read reports of this. There's no proof that they were actually, that the town was actually, uh, they, they think that maybe a hallucinogenic drug was put in water supply or something like that. But there are reports that people in this town for like a 24 hour period started hallucinating and went stark raving mad. And um, there has been some, some investigation into that. Uh, now I know for a fact that people do get sprayed and do get high. It seems, it seems when you, when you hear it for the first time, you say, oh, that's horrible. Nobody would ever do that. But I believe, um, Jake, you know somebody who's been sprayed. No, I do. A friend of mine, he was, uh, he was at a show. I can't remember what kind of show. It might have been like an Humphreys McGee show or one of those type, you know, like a jam band show. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said that there was there, there were people in the crowd, multiple people in the crowd, with bottles of water with holes poking in the, in the top of the cap, mm-hmm. uh, and it had LSD and other kinds of uh, either LSD or research chemicals. Uh, and then were they just squirting it? And they were just squirting it on people. And he happened to have gotten hit in the arm with it, and uh, he was very unhappy about that. He was well. Very now unhappy. I I testified in a case in federal court as an expert witness. Um, uh, a young man was arrested as being a psychedelic chemist and part of the reports that the informant gave on him, a woman was arrested with um, some drugs in her pocket and she said okay well I'm in order to reduce my sentence I'll tell you where I got him, I got him from this other guy he makes all this other stuff and in her testimony she says that this guy was was making LSD or trying to get a large enough supply of LSD to put into a two-gallon milk jug uh, with, you know, in a water solution so that he could take it to a show to spray on people. It was like an outdoor Burning Man type festival. And I I had to come in and testify. The the, um, defender, public defender, Need someone local to, who was an expert on psychedelics and, and, and psychedelic scene to come in and talk about whether this testimony was accurate or not, whether the testimony this woman gave, you know, fit reality, whether uh, this guy with the equipment that was found in his house would have been able to produce enough LSD to pull off this kind of a, a stunt. And uh, so I came in and I basically said, well, to produce that much LSD, you would probably need a pretty, a pretty elaborate setup. Um, I didn't see anything that they confiscated that looked like it could be done. And I also testified that I have very, I mean, I have almost never, ever heard of what this, what they were talking about. Somebody using a two two gallon milk jug full of water with holes poked in it to spray a crowd of people with LSD. They specifically asked me, have you ever heard of anybody doing that? And I said, I've heard of people maybe doing it with spray bottles, but not, or squirt guns. But not with like two gallon jugs of water, you know, dumped over crowds. And since that time, I have heard of a couple incidences like that. So, um, 
when Davy asks, why hasn't there ever been a mass dosing? I don't know who he's talking about that he wants dosed because I think there have been mass dosings, accidental mass dosing, intentional mass dosings. People used to, in the 60s, in the acid tests, people would spike the punch bowls with LSD. And you oh, had yeah. to choose which punch bowl you were going to drink out of. And you would either drink out of the happy punch bowl or the sad punch bowl. And, you know, crazy stuff like that happened all, all the time. Not so much these days because I think people are a little bit more conservative with, with their drugs. I, I agree. But like you said, I mean, when you go to these festivals, uh, you know, if somebody's pouring water onto the crowd, uh, who knows what's in it? Yeah, I mean, as I said, it could very well be LSD or it could be some kind of other Now, I think he's channel. talking about more of a political or a terrorist yeah, weaponized I, I, attack. And I'm not sure that there's anything to be gained from an attack like that. I, I don't think so either. I, I mean, you know... The, I really hate to say this, and it does violate the Geneva Convention because... Oh, wait, wait, wait. no, no, no. I think Aum Shinrikyo in Tokyo tried to dose people on the subways. If you look up Aum Shinrikyo, they were a cult in the 90s, I believe. A-U-M, Aum Shinrikyo. Uh, The uh, leader of that cult was arrested for trying to do all sorts of um, public terrorist acts with biological agents, and he apparently did give LSD to his his followers and um, did tell them to go into the subways and dose people with LSD unsuspectingly. So let me. I don't know if that you would call that a mass. Um, That was more of like a like a targeted, you know, sort of a sleeper application as opposed to a uh, you know like a mass put it in the water supply. But that was in, you know, I think there was a show Wild in the Streets, uh, a movie. There is, um, you know, late sixties where that was a plot point. There is a, um, there is actually a, a a video online that you can, that you can show. And, and, and I just want to make my comments on the, on the, on this part of it. So, First of all, chemical weapons are in violation of international law. You can't have them. And Ellis, I mean, if you're using LSD against another group of people as a weapon, it's considered a chemical weapon. So, um, but, as early as 1963, they were testing LSD on British troops to see what would happen. Uh, there's actually a video you can watch of these guys, of some of them, you know, curling up on a ball, crying for their mother, other ones climbing trees and smiling and running yeah, around. Yeah, they can't tell and, how far away things are. Yeah, they're like I'm, you know, ducking down behind things because they're all, they're freaked out. <laughs> so, 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 so here's the thing. Could it be used as an effective chemical weapon? Well, yeah, but how are you going to dose an entire army? <laughs> yeah, the application becomes um, <laughs> difficult. You can, I think, you know, I think maybe in Vietnam they may have they may have experimented with this kind of stuff. I know BZ was something that they were experimenting with around that time, uh-huh. and the movie Jacob's Ladder, which is, I think, um, still one of the craziest psychedelic movies, uh, deals with the subject of soldiers. Uh, you know, dosed with a weaponized hallucinogen um, that causes, um, you know, uh, insane violent madness. So, and it's, you know, just a twisted journey through uh, nightmare escapes that anywhere you can't tell reality from, from fantasy. Right. Yeah. And uh, I don't Have you seen Jacob's ladder? I have not. No. Well, okay. For those of you who, I mean, it was something that I saw. I mean, it must've come out. Gosh, like, 1991, I think. Yeah, now came out in My friends and I had never seen anything like it. But we were <laughs> very much into psychedelics at that time, and I don't want you know no spoilers. But the plot revolves around a, a weaponized hallucinogen. Now there was so yeah, and that may, <clears throat> may or may not have been based on a true story. So, and this is um, 
Also, another uh, comment from Davey. This is the second part of his comment. Um, he said, on, a, on another note, I basically agree with Jake and James. Middle-aged family man has little time for this kind of experimentation. I partnered recently with a fungal spe- species only to conclude that I could achieve a more relevant whole in creative integration through my practice of mindfulness. It has been nearly 20 years since I'd gone whole hog. In fact, it was kind of fun to revisit the gooey visuals, but I felt slightly poisoned at a somatic level for much of the evening. Lesson learned. Yeah, and I've noticed that too. Um, The poisoned feeling I tend to notice uh, more when I'm alone, and also if I haven't fasted and done done like my normal, uh, you know, sort of intentional rituals for the couple days leading into it. I've also found that um, if I'm out with a group of people um, at a festival or a show or something, the toxic effects are, they don't, they, they're, they're not as, they're either not as noticeable or they don't become as heavy just because there's activity involved and there's other people involved. So you don't, you don't get, um, you don't get overwhelmed and, and lumping, you know, like where you just like, you know, fall onto the couch and you just sort of sit there and swim in visions for, for a few hours. That does sort of feel a little bit toxic when you're doing that. Uh, it can also feel very cleansing uh, at the same time because your body in reaction to those toxins wants to flush everything out. So there is a little bit of, you know, there's, there is a little bit of poisoning going on in the psychedelic experience and uh, your body can, can react in, in different ways to that. So, yeah, definitely with a high dose of mushrooms, is you, you can feel like you're poisoned. And on a high, high dose of anything, you feel like, I'm dying. <laughs> yeah, I mean, pretty much. Even when you're not even close to dying. I mean, you just right. feel like you're dying. Because you're, you're like, oh, I took a drug and everything's coming apart and I don't know what's happening and I'm dying. Well, that ha- well, and that happens to a lot of people and that can mess up people too as well, mentally. So yeah, I mean, I've had ways. that experience. I've had that experience, but you know, I always would just have to check myself and say, well, my heart is still beating and I'm still breathing. I'm obviously not dying. Right. So, I mean, you know, <laughs> you, some, some people, you know, somebody told me once when I was having a bad experience, they said, if you were dying, you would know it. <laughs> <laughs> They were like, trust me, you would, you would be. I don't know that you would, though. I don't know that you would. I think when, you know, when people who overdose, it's hard to tell, you know, at what point do they lose consciousness and then at what point do they then die? There's got to be a point in between where they have no idea what's going on. Uh, and uh, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's and, you know, in terms of ways to die, it's, it's horrible. Uh, it seems like a horrible waste, but it's probably not that. In experientially, you you don't even know what's happening. You don't even know that you're dying. Maybe. Um, I wonder where that leaves you. I don't know. Anyway, this is that 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 that, that, like, that can lead us to all sorts of theological wormholes. <laughs> oh man! Oh, actually, you know, this is this is funny. Um, one of the things I wanted to talk about, uh, maybe not on this show, but on on some shows, was this idea of that reality is an illusion, and some people when they become really psychotic they begin to believe that reality is a, an illusion like at the matrix like a forced dream that we're all that we're all you know trapped in and that the only way to get out is to commit suicide 
or to overdose on the drug. And that's a, you know, that's a kind of common form of suicidal psychosis that's not based on depression. You know, most people think suicidal psychosis is based on this world is too painful for me. I can't live it anymore. I need to get out. There are some people, and this is often associated with psychedelic use or uh, delusional behavior that's not drug-related, where people start to believe that reality is an illusion that we're trapped in by some sort of, you know, evil machinations or evil forces, and that the only way to escape the game is to commit suicide, and then you will be free. But, uh, you know, that's, that's neither here nor there. But, but, that's, uh, that, that sounds like insanity to me. Yeah, it is insanity, but when you, but, but you know, psychedelics lead to a lot of insane ideas. So there are people who commit suicide on psychedelics, like jumping off of things or, you know, uh, slicing themselves open or, or doing really bizarre, weird things that seem completely out of character because they weren't depressed people. But maybe they get a crazy idea in their head that they're trapped in a dream that they can't get out of. And the only way that they can get out of it is if they kill themselves, you know, like, um, uh, what was that movie concept inception? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Inception. I did. I did see that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So okay. they get the, they, in, they seed themselves with the incept of the, of the idea that they're trapped in some dream. And then they need to jump off this building to free themselves from this dream or whatever. And that's just, you know, that's, those are the the casualties of overdoses that nobody likes to hear about. No, and it's and it's very unfortunate when things like that happen because it's just they need medical attention as soon as possible. Really, is what it comes down to. Um, and uh, you know they they need to be administered something that's going to bring them down and then be monitored in a medical setting. In my opinion. Well, you know, like and that. there's I've I've read suicide notes from people who write these big long epic poems about how they realize that life is a life is a dream and that we're all living in illusion, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And now um if you're a philosopher and you have a lot of luxury for for playing with the notions of reality as an illusion, then that's that's fine. Go off and, and play in those that magical reality. But like Davy says, if you're a middle aged family man, you don't you don't need to walk around thinking that reality is an illusion. That's not no, helpful no. for anybody. But I I mean I also think the other thing is is that you can say, well, reality is an illusion without jumping off of off off of a building. Uh, you know, I mean, w- William James said in one of his writings, the only thing that we know is that we're conscious in the present moment. Did that make him go jump off a building because everything is futile and pointless? Well, of course not. So, no, but see, he didn't, he, didn't, he didn't come to any conclusions about what happens once life ceases. No, 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 right. And, and, and that's one of the things that, uh, that, that, that many people do. And, and, and you can come to those kinds of conclusions, but I think that they end up being beliefs as opposed to solid conclusions they end up being well, yeah. you know conjectured opinions and not that they're wrong or right i'm not condemning them or condoning them um all I'm, you know all i'm saying is that it, is that again you know people will form that opinion based on a on a uh on a on a symbiosis of their logic and their experience and then they'll right. make and their own opinion you and i have gotten into these conversations with yeah, people we have. where yeah. we're arguing say some sort of <laughs> 
weird quasi pseudoscientific thing about quantum mechanics or science and spirituality of the soul. And somebody will come up with this argument that says, well, quantum mechanics says that everything is really just a vibration and, and reality is just an illusion. And we create reality by observing it. And they, then, then they throw these whole, they throw this whole reality as an illusion. Um, Concept. So like, yeah, I had, I had somebody trying to tell me that consciousness is an illusion, that, that, the, that the individuality of consciousness is an illusion. I mean, I can make an argument right now of, 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 of why, I mean, of, of, of A, how everything is vibration, and B, why it makes things more real, if not, you know, rather than less real. Look, if you well, want to say of, that everything is vibrating. things being not what they seem is is really you know at the core of this reality is an illusion thing people want reality to be more mysterious than it seems well i mean look it, i mean things are uh, I, and i'm not saying that there aren't things maybe layered on this reality i mean i have no idea but what i'm saying is is that look i'm sitting at a desk i can knock on the desk i can knock on but you could do that Mac in a dream computer. too no 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 but i'm physically touching this i'm physically feeling it in, in, but I've been in dreams, you know, I do a lot of lucid dreamings, and I've been in dreams can, where there are moments where I can't tell if I'm dreaming or I can not, because the, the, the dream reality, the illusion, is as real as the reality that I normally right, have. Right, but I, but I can demonstrate to you that this computer exists, because there are other models of it that exist. It's been manufactured by a company, it has a serial number that goes back to that company. Right, and these are details right. that are too meticulous for an individual's dreaming mind. To create exactly, so that's how I know that this is real versus the dream. Now, that's not saying that there are not archetypal representations in the dream that can be true and that can be useful. It's just that the that the dream is not reality in the same sense that me knocking on this computer or me touching this microphone is a reality. Does right, that, and, that and so the the only way to solve this problem when somebody comes at you with the argument that reality is an illusion. Is that you have to break it down as a semantic argument, and you have, and you can, and you, and it basically that that statement is a paradox. Reality is an illusion, because in order for there to be something illusory, something there has to be, real. to be a reality that is objective and definable for that illusory construct to appear in, and the thing that makes the that makes the illusory thing an illusion is that it is temporary and it is fabricated out of sub-phenomena of the reality. And that brings us back to phenomenology, which is... So if you say reality is an illusion, you're saying, well, whose illusion is it? Because I, you need to then create another reality underneath this reality that the illusion, that the construct of the illusion can happen in. And then you have to describe the time scale of that reality. So if our universe is just an illusion that happens within the time frame of a much larger universe, then we're talking about, you know, meta-illusions within meta-illusions. And I don't think that's, that's really helpful. The other thing is... When you, when you talk about illusions, you say, well, an illusion is, oh, I see heat waves coming off, you know, the horizon in the distance uh, that look like, you know, shimmering water. That's an illusion because, you know, it doesn't exact, it actually exist. I see, you know, um, you know, there seems to be a specter in the smoke there. Oh, it was just, you know, light shining through it at a certain angle. That's an illusion. So an illusion is something that can be easily dissipated 
because it's made out of intangibles. Right. So reality it, is not something that can be easily dissipated. No, it it's cannot. not made out of intangibles. But what I but but but, but 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 I will argue the other side of the coin to you and say that though this is reality, there is phenomena within this reality, like the specter, like the heat on the horizon that you mentioned. Some of these things could be. Um, uh, th- those are bad examples. But well, even our dreams. I mean, our dreams right. are, are, are created. Again, it's it's from, it's phenomenology. From, from flickers, you know, flickers of electricity in our brain. But what I'm saying is, is that there is some, is that I wouldn't go as far as saying reality is an illusion, but there, but there is phenomena that exists w- within the within our reality that we cannot explain or that we have a very hard time explaining. Uh, well, yes, and that I would say. There, therein lies the mystery, but I don't think that you can then take the next step by saying, well, because we don't understand what these things are, therefore reality is an illusion. Right. So I so, think, yeah, and then people will jump on anything. I, you know, I, I like to say that you know, the, 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 the best proof that consciousness is physical is that everything in the universe that can be observed and measured is physical. And everything in the universe can be observed and measured, therefore everything is physical. And people will say, well, what about dark matter? It can't be observed. And I was like, well, what is, what is dark matter called? It's called dark matter. It has mass. We can measure the mass. That's why we know it's a thing. Um, we may not know what it is, but, that, but dark matter is not non-physical. Now, do dark I- matter is a physical thing that doesn't seem to interact with other physical things. It's like a, you know, like a noble gas of the... Um, of the, the, of the um, I don't want to say quantum, but maybe subatomic particular world. That's um, not like an antimatter. It's like a null matter, a dark matter. All right. So what is it? Oh, it's, it's weird. So, um, but it's not like a non-physical illusion. <laughs> right. Now, 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 I also want to throw this out there. Is it possible that there is something else going on other than what we see on, you know, on a daily basis? Absolute, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Tons of, absolutely. Well, we tons see of things such a very small, we don't see any of the right, electromagnetic right. spectrum except right. the visible light. So, so there's all sorts of stuff going on in the electromagnetic spectrum that we don't see. But we can build spectrometers to see that stuff. The, but again, now, is there something super, super, super off the high energy scale going on that we can never detect because it's such a high frequency vibration? Maybe. Who knows? Well, that's when you, you get know, into is the there realm of phenomenology. That beyond the realm of vibration? I, I, I think so. I don't know. I, I think so. I, I, I believe so. Only, but, but again, it's and if all, there is, I don't know how you would measure that thing or even it, it, be able to define it. Or if you could measure that thing. And that's kind of where I get into this, to this, to this sort of um, problem when, because there is some phenomenology that I am willing to accept, and when you begin to accept certain phenomenology, that line begins to blend. Because I accept reality as a as as a physicality, of course, but the issue is is that is is that line begins to get blurred, and then you start asking yourself. Well, where does this phenomenology come from, or what is, or what is it that people are experiencing, or what is it that they're seeing, or what is it that was observed, or whatever, that cannot be redemonstrated, but but where, but, but that correlates with other things that happen around the globe, um, you know, other type of phenomen, uh, phenomenological events. So that's sort of where that that line be, begins to blur for me. But I don't take the step and say, well. Okay, because phenom- because phenomena exist, this reality isn't real. I'm saying, well, because like this reality is real, 
phenomena does exist, where does that come from? Does it come from physical reality, or is there something superimposed, as you said, that we cannot measure, that we cannot see, that is not vibrant, that is not a vibration in which things come through, in which in, in which phenomena come through, that we can interact with on some way, like you know the ascetics do, or like you know uh, whatever. So that's that's that that's that's where that line begins to, to to kind of get blended for me. I would say right, and and the thing that always that I always come back to is that the reality that we know, that we experience every day, is mostly an illusion that we create for ourselves. It's like a cartoon version, like you. It's a cartoon cartoon version of reality that right. we experience, so that we can interact with it and you know, like avoid things and right. you know, find food and stuff. Um, and it's like you know, like a very low resolution, very low spectrum, very narrow spectrum window into the reality that we that we live in, and that reality is sort of painted in our brains, and that that painting in our brains can be uh, wrong. You know, we can imagine things that are outside that are not actually there. We can paint things into our, our vision of reality. We can paint conspiracies that don't exist into our vision of reality. We can paint all sorts of things because it's our subjective version of reality. And you need to, con- I mean, in, in, you know, societies where we're highly technological, we need to constantly check those realities those internal realities with the external reality. And, you know, there are societies, cultures where there are no hard lines between what is real and what is illusion. You know, I think for most of history, that's, that's kind of the way it was. I I, don't know where reality and superstition, there was no, well, be, you know, be, because there was, was no way for them to measure what what was reality versus what was superstition versus what 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 was an actual phenomena. You see, there there was no way to differentiate because they didn't have the knowledge at that point to do. Well, I would argue that some people had the knowledge to do it, but it was not widespread. No, no. I mean, well, I mean, you need literacy, you need education, you right? Need, and you need, you who, need criticism and rational method and all of this. Stuff. And who were the people that were that that that, that, that were doing that in the 10th century and the 11th century. They were monks living in the middle of the desert. Who are they going to share? I mean, the common peasant in England is not going to hear about this. You know, so, I mean, the common person was was, was, was pretty uneducated. Yeah. Generally yeah. speaking. And so, um, you know, um, reality even, is an illusion even the up Lord's to a point. Couldn't write. Up to the point where, it, you know, you need to eat, where it begins to kill you. <laughs> right, I mean, I mean... Like reality, Terrence McKenna used to say, reality is that which will kill you if you ignore it long enough. Right, and, you know, I mean, sort of... And the people that you're talking about worked just within what they had for survival purposes. I mean, not even the barons of the Lords could always read and write. Which was no, 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 and they were at the whim of they couldn't, and if they could, they certainly couldn't read and write Latin. No, and they were at the whim of the church and the church because nobody, everybody was illiterate except for the church. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, no. I mean, I mean, really, most people were illiterate except for the churches. That was it. No, it's true. So I, you know, I, I take for granted the fact that that I know a lot of stuff, and I'm always amazed when I hear people who I consider educated say things that are wrong or say like, I don't know where this or that phenomenon comes from 
because to me, a lot of things seem so obvious. But then again, I live in an age with the internet and Wikipedia and I, whenever I have a question or any kind of curiosity and I have questions and curiosities all day, those get satisfied immediately. I mean, if I was living in a time where I didn't have access. You were to, living you know, in 11th century uh, England. Uh, you and know. I didn't have access to the library or to the monks or to the, the place where I could go to get those answers. I would be, you know, I would probably be in prison somewhere and I would be somebody's slave in fetters <laughs> because I would be the kind of, the kind of person that, that would always be getting into things bucking that the system. I wasn't supposed to be getting into. He's bucking the system. Speaking of bucking the system, let's move on to uh, to another subject, since I think we've spent a lot of time on this one here. Very good one, though. Thank you, Davey, for bringing that up. This is from a new commenter I haven't seen before, D.K. Wilson. Just found you guys in a search for a related subject. I do understand ceasing ingesting psychedelics. I began my quest at 13 and stopped 14 years later. Yes, uh, at the time of stoppage, I'd spent over half my life tripping. I am proud to say that I have never ingested hallucinogens in any other way than that of a ritualistic environment uh, conducive to listening to the universe spinning in and outside of my being. However, after another 13 years of not dreaming while awake and growing a family and all the associated movement that go with that wonderful activity, I am preparing to head off again, this time as an adult, and not, in nearly, as, and, and not nearly as intensely as before. On conspiracy theories, please either know or remember that the phrase was first coined for use by the CIA, espoused through various news mediums to deter people from researching the JFK assassination. Also, you're absolutely correct about gun theory, but you also must understand that in part, the heightened take-away-your-guns craze is a side manifestation of the overreaching racist reaction towards President Obama. Conspiracies by the powers that be to control the populace do exist, though most often not for reasons popularly espoused, or, or, or excuse me, though most, of, the, the most often not for the reasons mo, mo, uh, popularly espoused. Having been a member of the media, I know with certainty that newspaper editors and television producers will urge the writers and reporters to push the craziest of theories in order to marginalize those who, are, who have very real insights into the workings that go on behind the veil. Ah, hell, I could go on forever. My deceased father was deep ONI, so I have some first-hand knowledge of the training involved in that line of work, as well as the knowledge of some of, dark, of some of the dark research performed by the agencies. Anyway, great podcast. Keep up the work. Yeah, that's a very Noam Chomskyan perspective of um, the media wants to keep you fascinated with the crazy, hyped-up stuff. So you don't see the mundane day-to-day, much more corrupt, much more embedded conspiracies going on behind the scenes. Yeah, and by the way, I'm a huge fan of Noam Chomsky. Oh, yeah. So yeah. If, 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 if there is any – if anybody has a, a cent left over in their bank account, go out and buy a copy of Manufacturing Consent um, and read that book uh, and then, or, or watch the documentary. I think you can, get it, you can find it on YouTube. Uh, manufacturing consent. It's a great, great documentary. It talks about the public relations industry. Um, I've met Noam Chomsky. I've spent some time speaking with him. Um, you know, and uh, since that period, him and I have emailed each other back and forth occasionally. And uh, he is a brilliant man, brilliant, brilliant man. Um, so definitely check out Manufacturing Consent, and uh, you know, watch the watch the documentary if you can, because. Really, I, 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 I can say I, I don't think I've ever seen that man lose a debate. 
And there's a reason. For, no, 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 no. I, and I've watched. Well, he does his research. I mean, he does his research, and you can't you can't catch him with buzzwords and uh, you know uh, sound bites or talking points because he he knows how the system works. There's no such thing as a Noam Chomsky soundbite because everything is about 20 minutes long because it requires a very long ex- explanation. Because <laughs> That's right. He, because That's he, right. The system is complex. The because, system is complex. Because he knows that if it, that if he doesn't spend 20 minutes giving somebody an explanation that they'll take a two-second soundbite and make him look like something that he's not. Right. And you can't <laughs> just say you can't just say the hand of the free market as if that's the answer to everything. No. And, and, and you know what? One of the greatest things that I, that I heard him say is he's like, you know, he he said everybody stops reading like the wealth of nations like around page forty. They read like the first two chapters and they just stop. <laughs> He's like, they, you know, they they don't read the part where Adam Smith talks about like market regulation and things like that. He's like, no, 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 no. They they just read the first two chapters. <laughs> He's like, that's yeah, it. And become and become evangelical about it. Yeah, and become evangelical capitalists, even though they have not read the entirety of the book. Um, and Adam uh, Smith does talk about market regulation later in The Wealth of Nations, so I, I would suggest that for those who are so capitalistic and based so much, and 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 excuse me if I'm uh, if I if I'm veering too far off topic, but please do me a favor, take Ayn Rand and throw her out the window. I've had, oh. I've, I've, I've 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 heard enough about her. I've heard enough about her. I'm done hearing about Ayn Rand. The woman was crazy. She had. She had a heart of stone. There was, there, there, there was about as much compassion in Ayn Rand as there was as there was in Hermann Goering. Zero, okay, zero. That's because compassion is weakness. Compassion is weakness. Love is weakness. We need to crush the weak. We need to, you know, the strong will survive. Don't worry about creating communities. Don't worry about uh, attempting to uh, help other people. No, think in your own self-interest at, 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 at all costs, at all costs, at the cost of the devastation of the world. Think in your own self-interest. Why? Because the individual needs to be protected. Yeah. And that's, you it's, know, extremist it's so views, ridiculous. all extremist views, um, fall under the weight of their own extremism. They eventually. do. They do. Uh, but I mean, people worship Ayn Rand as if, you know, uh, as if she's some kind of God, but you know, I mean, I mean, even even Chomsky talks about Ayn Rand and uh, and um, he, uh, Hitchens, who passed away, who was an atheist, talked about Ayn Rand. And uh, you know, again, favorably. Um, I don't believe that Hitchens discussed her favorably. <laughs> uh, Chomsky definitely did not discuss Ayn Rand favorably. He's not much of an anarcho-capitalist, but um, from 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 the reading well, the I've main done. the main thing I have against Ayn Rand uh, is is what I have against most of philosophy. Which is that you take a, a, a political view, which is basically an abstraction of ideology, which is an extraction of language and syntax, and you say, this is an accurate depiction of reality in the way things should be. And you throw around words like liberty and personal freedom, which sound like they mean something. But when you look at the world as a biological interconnected organism, things like freedom and personal liberty don't make sense. They don't exist. They are abstract ideas, and you cannot build a philosophy and a community and a way of life around an abstract idea that does not exist. 
You can allow for freedom and liberty, <laughs> but but you can't. You can entertain those ideas. You can debate those ideas. You can have fun writing books about those ideas, but you cannot build a sustainable reality on those ideas because they are as idealistically impossible as utopia. Right. Just as I mean, I mean, they're as idealistically impossible as 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 a communist utopia, or as a free market. Or as a you know um, you know a nation state that does not that is entirely peaceful, right? I mean it's 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 very hard to do. It's very yeah, hard. It's, to, you know, it's, no, no, no. In, well, you know, hold on. I'm going to practice. It's you know, in theory, it's 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 easy to create a mountain on a, on a hill. Ethiopia was a pretty uh, was a pretty. I mean, not a mountain on a hill. Pretty, <laughs> a temple on a hill. Pretty it's easy to create nation. a temple on a hill in in, in theory. You know, you can create the, the Olympus of Ayn Rand's, you know, mind where everybody is strong and, and uh, free and, and personal liberty. But, you know, then you also have, you know, that's Sparta, you know, where everybody is brutal and unforgiving. And, uh, Babies are thrown off cliffs. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's not a utopia for everybody. That's, that's like a hell for most people, except for the strongest. Yeah, I no, I I and that's and that's how Spartan society uh Spartan society worked. So, but I want to get to Eugene's comment because I thought okay. I thought that this one was was really interesting and he made about uh seven yeah, he made seven points. <laughs> so, uh in the and last Eugene is a is a regular writer. He's an old friend of mine. Yes. Uh, helped me was an invaluable help writing the first edition of Psychedelic Information Theory and uh, we've been going back and forth on these topics for many years. Eugene, I don't know you, but I do respect you, so thank you uh, for, for always commenting and writing. So, I found this discussion on, on, I, I found the discussion on psychedelics quite limited. Here are some points why I think psychedelics are not only relevant, but, but, very, but very important at this point in history. One, given the long discussion on how fucked up the... <laughs> sorry, I, I just reread that for the first That's time. That's explicit, go ahead. Days. Yeah. Uh, given the long discussion on how fucked up the world is right now, we can all agree that most, if not all, issues of our current world s- situation stem from a fragmented, ignorant, dysfunctional, violent, and greedy human consciousness. Hmm. Point number two. There is no other known tool that can change consciousness in such a rapid, consistent way as, as do psychedelics. With the right set and setting, these tools can dramatically aid healing, therapy, expanded awareness, and integration. Three. These tools are the most reliable mystical catalysts known to humanity. No need to give your life to a hierarchy of men enclosed in their cozy religious constructs to be saved, enlightened, or liberated. That I will go back and address later. Four, as tools, they allow the mature explorers of consciousness um, access to their minds, unconscious like no other known method. Five, for the study of neuroscience, they are indispensable if we aspire to get to the bottom of the mechanics of perception, language, and cognition. They are, hands down, the ultimate reprogramming, re-imprinting tool on consciousness species can, uh, a conscious species can have at their disposal. Six, by reshuffling the program and printed neur- uh, uh, neurotic neural pathways, these catalysts maximize our brain's neuroplastic nature, thereby giving creativity, problem-solving, spirituality, healing, and understanding a whole new level of possibility. Seven, and finally, they expand our notions of what is real, what is possible, and therefore being an essential tool for those interested in in exploring the ontological foundations of our universe. Like many in this thread, I am a 40-year-old father of two with a career, etc. Definitely no uh, no time to trip at thumping raves every weekend. Ah, those were the days. 
But a couple of times a year, I make time to check in and always come out with an ins- with an insight, higher integration, more love in my heart, feel more connected, or just rest in the bliss of the f- of the formless void. Of course, I prepare for these sessions with diet, yoga, meditation, intention, etc., therefore minimizing any potential negative effect. I still find them incredibly useful, powerful, enlightening, and still believe their vast potential has been ba- has been barely tapped, has barely been tapped. So, well, that's. I think that's all. Um, I I agree with the majority of what Eugene says. Um, as as usual, uh, Eugene and I differ on some um, ontological parsing of of reality, but uh, but he's right on 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 most of the things he says, with a couple small caveats. And one is that the idea that psychedelics can reshape and reform the personality is a valid one. But you have to ask the question, what is it being reshaped into? And is this brainwashing or is it therapy? So there's, there's there's a line there for me in all psychedelic therapy where you say what's going on here when we're quote unquote reprogramming somebody's mind. One, we're assuming that they're broken and and dysfunctional in the first place. And two, we're assuming that they can be quote-unquote fixed. So there's a couple really deep assumptions in personality theory in those statements that may not be entirely correct, the, the whole broken, fix-you uh, kind of, kind of uh, uh, dichotomy uh, implicit in, in, in psychiatric therapy. I'm not sure I agree with that. I, I tend to believe that every human being is dysfunctional to some degree, and there is no fixing. There is only finding coping mechanisms to integrate yourself in, into society in a, in a productive, satisfying way. Now, psychedelics may help you prioritize your life and find those coping mechanisms and, 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 and help you realize on a deeper level what is most healthy and what is most, most rewarding for you and maybe what is most healthy and what is most rewarding for your community and for the planet, etc. But having said that, I also feel this sort of weird hindsight about most of the psychedelic intentional communities that I have seen where you take a group of people who have really great intentions about forming an intentional community and opening themselves to love and mysticism and the creative power in the universe and, and you know, all of these, these, these big ideals. And what they wind up doing is creating these sheltered, closed off, isolated islands of groups that, you know, they're not, they're not really, I wouldn't call them cults. They're, they're like communes. You know, people become isolated and withdrawn in, in, this, in this psychedelic bubble as opposed to integrating their, their newfound corrected personalities with the larger community. And I don't know how to get past this, this notion of Yes, psychedelics can be used on a wide scale to create therapeutic benefit and people, uh, you know, reaching new levels of intelligence and creativity. But I've also seen those social experiments done, and I'm not sure the results are as dramatic or hype-worthy as Eugene 
says they are. I also want to want to. I think a- I think some people have found amazing uh, integrative lifestyles uh, that are you know ecologically friendly, loving, um, not hypocritical, earnest, uh, very mystical, and supportive of their community through the use of psychedelics. And they would not have been those the people that they are today if they hadn't been exposed to psychedelics. But there are people who've gone the other way, who have pro- who were probably really nice, integrated people before they got involved in psychedelics, and then they broke themselves somehow, and they became, you know, spun out and lost touch with reality. The other thing is... I'm so it can go either way. I mean, I think it can go either way, and I really respect Eugene's opinion because I, I feel the same way. I feel that it kind of, psychedelics sort of opened me up to the possibility of being you know, a more compassionate and forgiving person, you know, being loved and sharing love and all of these deep ideas that, that are sort of abstract until you really feel those, those powerful emotional surges. Um, I want to take issue with uh, point three that he made, um, which is no need to give your life to a hierarchy of men enclosed in their cozy religious constructs <laughs> to be saved, enlightened, or liberated. I wouldn't call them cozy religious constructs. Have you ever, if you've ever visited a Carthusian monastery, you will find that it is that it is not a cozy construct. I can tell you that right now. Um, the other thing is that I guarantee you that if that if you threw any of these mass dosed enlightened people into a Carthusian cell, they would go crazy within about a, w- within twenty four hours. Well, it depends Guaranteed. on whether or not they've they've learned to meditate. Guaranteed. If yeah. they have not learned to, and even if they have learned to meditate, they 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 would still probably end up going crazy. Well, from the isolation. Yeah, oh, the Cartesian yeah. monastery oh, yeah. is like putting yourself in um, solitary yeah. confinement. Right. So, and uh, and and I mean, to even be considered for the Carthusian order, you have to do that for a month. You know, not even as a postulant, just to, just just as a retreatant, where you go live in a cell. And you see if you can stick it out. So uh, you got to give these guys a little more credit because there's a lot that they can do that uh, you know these supposed psychedelic enlightened gurus cannot do, uh, like sit in a cell. And I'm not sure that you can just like eat an eighth of mushrooms or you know pop a tap of acid and get an enlightened mysticism without any kind of training going into it. I mean, sometimes you can. Sometimes you get lucky. But other times, you know, you start hallucinating and you think you're dying and you have a panic attack. So uh, sometimes it is nice to have a, a cozy hierarchy of enlightened elders to say, here's how you start. You know, it's no, not no, always the case. I agree. But, but you know, as I said, you know, really my, my – so, so so I don't want – I don't want uh, you don't want Eugene again. This is what I would do um, to to get a what's that weird sound? Oh, Lord, sorry, I didn't know that. There's something on my computer. Um, th- there's a there's a great book on this topic. Um, we, we we've interviewed the author. Um, you can go back and listen to that podcast. It's called Tantalus and the Pelican. It's, it was written by the Reverend Doctor Nicholas Buxton. Um, and uh, you can find that on Amazon. You can click through our website and find it on Amazon. Uh, Tantalus and the Pelican, Monastic Spirituality Today. It's a fascinating book. Um, it really does... Um, he's a non-Catholic, uh, which is interesting. Uh, he's Anglican now, um, but was not you know, originally when he started off. And uh, 
<laughs> it's a very interesting book uh, that I think that you may enjoy. Uh, and it'll give you a better idea about, about monasticism. And, and look up the Carthusian order. Look up the Cistercian order. Look up the, uh, the Stylite monks of Georgia and the uh, anchorites of the deserts of Egypt. And I think that you'll find that there's, um, that there's a lot more there than you think. Um, and that it's, and I want to I say, um, just as a very quick aside, we tend to take morality for granted. We tend to take concepts of morality and good and bad, the Ten Commandments, whatever, for granted. As, oh yeah, those are things that every human should know are the correct way to live. That's not the case. You go to different cultures that don't have a Judeo-Christian architecture, their moralities are different. And you can't take for granted what is correct behavior. Those moralities come out of people meditating and doing these, you know, aesthetic retreats uh, and, and, and looking deep within and finding deep awareness about the correct way to live, whether you're Buddhist or whether you're a Christian mystic or any kind of mystic. It is this, 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 this hierarchy of mystics sort of looking inward, finding the right answer and delivering those moralities to the people that, you know, create the, the constructs of our culture that we, that we take for granted as the right way to live. Those didn't just come out of nowhere. Those aren't embedded into our DNA. Some of our, some of our morality is embedded into our DNA, but, a, but, but, but the vast majority, the rest of it, is culturally based. A lot of, I mean, I mean, people had to spend 40 years in the desert to accrue certain kinds of knowledge. I mean, that's no small task. So it's not, it's not a de facto truth that you take a psychedelic and, and moral truths will be bestowed upon you. No, because you uh, know what? I, it's, it's a, there's, there's a lot more that goes I into ha- it. I that. Have you, to need s- to have, you need to have the cultural framework. You need to have the moral framework. You need to have you know, the notion of authority and respect and family and all of these concepts that we take for granted that I, are built upon. I agree with you. And I, centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries of, of, of mystic, religious, political fusion. The other thing that I, that, that I, that I think is important to to point out is that, uh, you know, and I hate to say this, and this might offend people, but I don't care. Um, I, 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 I just, I just don't care. I just don't care at this point. Um, I, I, I've gone to conferences. I've gone to shows. I've gone to all this. I have friends who are big trip, you know, oh, we're big trippers and all this other kind of stuff. And, you know, oh, we trip and we're getting in touch with the guy of mine and all this other kind of stuff. I could, let me, let me, let me tell you, they are some of the most unstable people I have ever met in my entire life. Okay? Unstable, like, like emotionally Mentally, unstable. I, I mean, emotionally unstable, uh, financially unstable, um, flaky, family, just totally unstable people. Can't hold, it, you know, very hard, to, you know, for them to hold it together. Yet at the same time. When I go to, you know, you know, or they're angry, or they have an emotional issue, or they can't get past this block, and that's not to say that there aren't monks like that, but by and large, most of the monks that I have met, are they happy people? I wouldn't say that they're overjoyed jumping up and down, but they are content people. They have achieved some kind of inner contentness that the people who are tripping their, their faces off are somehow trying to achieve, but can't seem to achieve it. So what does that tell me? Well, maybe they know something that... The, that that everybody who's blasting themselves into outer space or even taking minor, minor, minor dosages. And to be fair, I agree with your assessment to a point. Um, 
And part and of the part of the issue is the the people who are most hardcore into the psychedelic scene and the uh, mystical political side of psychedelic activism are people in their late teens and young twenties and early adulthood who are very who become very passionate about things. Like this is the only you know, passion, way. Passion is a side effect of of being that age. You know, whatever you get into <laughs> at that age, and especially if it's something like psychedelics and mysticism and spirituality, and, and you know, blowing that up into a concept of quote unquote saving the world from from the uh, inherently evil and greedy and self serving human structure. That's all sort of you know a kind of a hippy dippy construct. And if me. you, read I'm not sure that there's a lot of validity in that whole "I'm going to save the world" with psychedelics kind of attitude. It's it's a, there's a little bit of self invention there, and it's a little bit inflated. I understand where that where the kernel of that argument comes from because I've definitely felt that myself. Uh, I'm not sure that we can like in- inflate that up into a full blown practice though. Does the world will psychedelics fix all the world's problems? I don't know. Will they fix some of them? Yes. Will they make some of them? Maybe. Uh, but I think psychedelics are finding a natural balance in society where people who do want to get access to them can get access to them. And like you know, one day, like I'm not sure if it was Davy or one of the other commenters said, they started taking psychedelics when they were 13 and took them for you know 15 years until they were in their you know almost in their 30s. So that's a long time for a person to be exposed to psychedelics over the course of a lifetime. I mean, that's just one person in culture. I can only imagine that there's hundreds of thousands of more people like Davy out there who, uh, you know, spent their young adulthood, you know, basically blowing the hinges off their brain to see what's next. Yeah, you know, and again, it, but but if you look at, and, and one of the biggest things that is advocated in, 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 in the various monastic rules is prudence. And his humility and his, and, and then Vagarius Ponticus talks about this, controlling the passions and, and working with them as opposed to letting them control you. Because that's, that's one of the biggest problems with, 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 with asceticism and with, and with anchorites in particular, is that if they're not properly formed to go out on their own, they can be, they can have incredibly overinflated egos. And it just kind of ruins the whole point of the journey itself. And I would say that the, the same goes for psychedelics. Because it looks yeah. to take away the ego in order to, for people to achieve greater things. So, um, but the concept of of wanting to fix the world because it's broken is a pretty ego driven concept. But that's not what mystics are trying to do. No, no. But when, when but 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 uh, there, something kind of implied in, the, in in Eugene's comment said, you know, most of the problems in the world today can be attributed to. You know this 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 petty nature of of human consciousness, and we can fix that if we you know follow these seven points. That's kind of to me a very sort of ego driven. I'm smarter than human nature. Psychedelics are the answer. Here's how we implement that. It, it seems very um, I, I don't know uh, messianic. I, I think you know there may have been some point in my life where I thought. Oh, if only we could get all of the leaders of the, of the world to sit in a room and do psychedelics together, or if only everybody could be exposed to psychedelics at some point and understand, you know, go through this sort of indoctrination process where they understand that they aren't, you know, individual units, but that they're part of this big blossoming organism, you know, called humanity or called 
Gaia or whatever you want to call it. I mean, and those, those are, you know, a little bit of, that's the anti Anne Rand hippy dippy. We're all one joyous neighborhood. The thing is, of. is that I actually like those people and I hang out with them and I know a lot of them, but, but I, I try to say like, look, man, take a step back and think about <laughs> things and analyze them and t- have a moment or two of prudence before jumping into it. Um, but there are people who can take psychedelics and walk away with them with a very, very libertarian, utilitarian attitude that has nothing to do with the I am an integrated part of the guy in mind. Yeah, so again, I mean, it's so psychedelics, then it brings it back to my original, or to, to, to a statement that I've made on previous podcasts, which is that psychedelics are a tool, and yeah. it depends on how you use them, and it depends on the person who's using them, the state of consciousness that they're in, uh, that will produce a different result. When it comes to asceticism and living by a rule, and uh, to quote Eugene, um, what was it? Uh, quote: hierarchy no, no, of- no need to give your life to a hierarchy <laughs> of men enclosed in their cozy religious constructs to be saved, enlightened, or liberated. Um, when you live by that rule, you have less of that, and you have less of that uh, insanity, and and more people can are, are able to reach a contented, peaceful state than they are by just dosing up. Um, so you know, and and it's and it's also a formation process. It's a process of going through because you learn, uh, because people live by a common rule, and there is a reason for that. There's a reason for people living by a common rule. So you don't have one person taking a you know go, going in there and coming out with the, with the revelation that uh, okay, we need to we need to kill off all of the poor people because they're the problem. <laughs> You know, and you know, this is my mystical experience. And then the other guy is saying, "Oh no, we need to put them all in a in a big camp so we can feed them all." Uh, you know, just in the same way that when you have someone on psychedelics, they 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 take them and they have an Ayn Rand view of the universe, and then somebody else turns into Noam Chomsky. Yeah, I mean, you, you know can what have I mean? A completely brutalistic. That's what I'm saying. But so, and what the rule does? Know, uh, the rule has a trip function through through just the ugliness of nature. The rule has a function. There is a function to the rule of St. Benedict and uh, the rule of St. Bruno and the other rules that, that exist, the rule of St. Aug- of, uh, of Augustine. They exist for a reason. Um, and if you read them and if you go back and you look at them, you'll understand why they exist and you'll see why, why, why they're there. Because when Benedict wrote his rule at Subiaco and, and implemented it at the monastery at Subiaco, he was trying to teach monks how to live an authentic Christian life in community with each other. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, and, and, and in the first chapter of the rule of St. Benedict, uh, Benedict basically goes on a diatribe where he, where, where he discusses the kinds of monks and why, they're, why certain monks are detestable. <laughs> no, I know. I'm, 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 I'm very serious. That that is exactly what he did, and 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 he did it with good reason. He talked about the Cenobites, and he talked about um, you know the people who travel in pairs, indulging all of their perversities because they have um, you know because they have this um, this this uh, because they have no abbot because they have no rule, right? Um, you know, and, and, and I want to kind of I want to kind of cut in here before we get too off topic, but Benedict was. Like like many monks, an educated man, and uh, Eugene is an educated man. He's a college educated man. He's got a graduate degree, uh, maybe a couple graduate degrees. Um, we take for granted that the experience of the middle class, industrialized, modern world, educated person on psychedelics is the de facto proper response for people who take psychedelics. You know, we take for granted the fact that 
that people, sh- you know, there's there's a pre-enlightenment that goes into taking psychedelics before you become enlightened. Many people in, you know, in, in the West are exposed to psychedelics. They're already literate. You know, they've already been exposed to philosophy. They've already been exposed to morality. They've already been exposed to, um, you know, fantasy and technology and science fiction and all of these heady concepts that come out of the psychedelic experience. So they do have a framework to lay on them as opposed to, you know, somebody in Central Africa who's illiterate and raised in a small tribe that believes in magic. They take psychedelics. They are going to have a very different view of what's going on in that trip than the educated Western per- middle-class person You know, and, does. And, and let me also read this just to further illustrate my point. Uh, this is this is from chapter one on the uh, of the rule of Saint Benedict, and this is why I want and, and this is oh. this is a strong point that I want to illustrate to Eugene. Okay, quote. But a third and most vile class of monks is that of the Sarabates, who have tried who have been tried by no rule under the hand of a master, as gold is tried in fire. Proverbs twenty seven twenty one. But soft as lead, and still keeping faith in the world by their works, they are known to belial God by their tonsure, living in twos and threes, or even singly. Without a shepherd enclosed, not in the Lord sheepfold, but in their own, the gratification of their desires is law unto them, because what they choose to do they call holy, but what they dislike they hold to be unlawful. But the fourth class of monks is that called the landloppers, who keep going their whole life long from one province to another, staying three or four days at a time in different cells as guests. Always roving and never settled, they indulge their passions and their cravings of their appetite, and are in every way worse than the Sarabites. It is better to pass all these over in silence than to speak of their most wretched life. Therefore, passing these over, let us go on with the help of God to lay down a rule for, for that most valiant kind of monk, the Cenobites. And the Cenobites are the first kinds of monks, that is, the monastics who live under the rule of an abbot, who live under a rule and an abbot. So yeah, he's basically saying left to their own devices, these um, you know roaming, unaffiliated monks uh, become victims of their passions. Right, but he also mentions anchorites or hermits. He says that is of whose of of those who no longer in the first fervor of their conversion, but taught by long monastic practice and the help of many brethren, have already learned to fight against the devil and going forth from the rank of their brethren, well trained for single combat in the desert. They are able, with the help of God, to cope single-handed without the help of others against the vices of the flesh and evil thoughts. That will be that will be someone like Father Lazarus L. Anthony or Father Maximus or Maximius, who lives on the uh, um, on the top of the pillar in Georgia, who's a stylite monk. So, just wanted to illustrate that out to Eugene. It's it's right there in the first chapter. I would suggest going and reading the whole thing. It's a very short book. It's not very long. Okay. So, well. We've actually gone way over time here. <laughs> do you want to do you want to do a special extended podcast? Yeah, you know what? Let's just uh, finish up. Uh, we'll do we'll do one or two more comments. And well, the, do you want to? There was one thing I wanted to address. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, this week. Um, well, we can we can talk about more comments. We don't need to. No, do no, that no, 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 no. Please go ahead. Please. Well, okay. There's. Um, we've been. We just came off of this government shutdown thing, which was sort of a a big pain in the butt. And uh, following that was this, the Obama, <laughs> Obamacare, the Affordable Health Care Act website, healthcare.gov, which has been getting all the headlines for the last few days, the last week since it's opened because it's been so buggy. And as a web developer who's built 
enterprise level websites for rollout to millions of customers. Uh, this was just a colossal failure <laughs> of, of the Obama administration. And I would like to squarely point the finger at outsourcing government contracts to private corporations. Now, I would, people are pointing the finger at Catherine Sebelius, the, 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 but I the, thought, wait the a woman minute, in charge of the Health and Human Services Department, whose job it was to put this website together. But the fact that they decided to outsource this to private contractors. But I thought the free market does it better. Isn't that a fact? What's that? Privatization doesn't better. Mm, yeah, give it to is, the lowest bidder. I think it was exactly. a Canadian corporate is, company isn't named that a fact, CGI. Though? They the didn't even give it to an American company. Let the free market go, right? Let the free market do it because they'll do the best <laughs> job, right? The free market is going to do the best job. Well, they put the contract out on the free market and it turned out to be very bad. Yeah, and it's this is I I don't know how this Canadian company CGI got the contract. I am just you know it almost it, it, so much of this uh, reeks of uh, bad development. Uh, I've you know I've done development on sites that have worked, and, and I've done development on sites that have come out bad, and it all comes down to management and uh, the management decision to outsource the bulk of this to uh, a private company just blows my mind. Uh, they're, you know, I, I, the, the Republicans are probably the ones who are bellyaching about uh, government getting too big, and they're the ones who more than anybody would probably want to outsource to a private company. So we're not spending all that money in government to make things happen. But the website that was supposed to cost like $4 million is now like I think up to $80 million and it doesn't work properly and they didn't roll it out properly. There are so many things that you could have done to roll a website out like this properly. It wasn't beta tested properly. There wasn't any staggered rollout. You could have had a rolling um, uh, login where people who wanted to be uh, uh, you know, the early adopters of this could have signed up on an email address, a, a list. There could have been a waiting list where you know, only a couple hundred thousand people are given passcodes to sign up on, you know, each day. So you don't get everybody flooding the website all at once. And basically what they did is they created a situation where they got hit by their own denial of service attack. They got, they had so many people hitting the website all at once that their servers couldn't keep up with all of the, all of the requests. And there may have been some shenanigans going on here too. I mean, there could be, there could be hacking operatives out there specifically running denial of service attacks against healthcare.gov to keep it down and unresponsive for the first few days that it was out. I don't think that was necessary because of, just because of the overwhelming number of people that, that were trying to get it all at once. But, you know, there could have, there could have been ways to mitigate that. Um, I'm just, I'm just astounded that the whole process went the way it did as, you know, this is my profession and this is something that I've done for many years, seeing a web website come out and spectacularly fail so badly to me just shows every, I mean, if this was, if this was a fighter jet, you know, that rolled off into the sky and blew up, you know, an $80 million fighter jet, somebody, somebody's ass would be on the line. Um, and it would be the contractor. It wouldn't be the senator who gave the contract to, you know, 
McDonnell Douglas or whoever it was, it would be somebody at McDonnell Douglas whose head would roll. Somebody at this private outsourcing firm, their heads should roll. And the person who set that up, they should definitely be um, held suspect because the whole thing is just fucking crazy in my mind. Um, it seems like, um, you know, and, you know, I can only imagine all of the internal meetings that went into putting those things together and all of the legal uh, loopholes they had to jump through about what kind of information they could collect and what kind of information they could release and uh, all of the loopholes about what kind of government servers they needed to be tied into to check social security numbers and residency records and so on. But even considering all of that, major fail, major fail. And it's just, I mean, and, and I know that the media is jumping on one or two particular glitches to, to highlight that seem like minor things. And they are really technically minor things, which is all the more aggravating because they are such minor things they could have been easily avoided. So bad, bad programmers. Bad, bad programmers. <laughs> bad. No, no. Bad programmers. And it's so funny because people think the web, where that creating a website is a solution to something. But managing a website like that is a, is a big can of worms. I mean, it's, it is a huge problem. So it's not always the easiest solution to say, hey, let's just put a website up to capture the data. It's, you know, it's a very technolo- it's a big technological hurdle. It is. Yeah. So, so what did you think of the government shutdown? Oh, I thought it was just a, a little bull. <laughs> more distraction. <laughs> yeah, more distraction. I mean... I, I just kind of sat in front of my computer for a couple of days and was like, oh, well, let's see what happens. And then... Uh, yeah, you know, I could tell from the beginning that they had backed themselves in the corner and there was no way to get out of it. And uh, it just it just went down exactly the way I thought it would. And I don't know... You know, I guess these Republican Congress people do have constituents in their uh, home, in their home districts that really, really want them to do this. Um and they're not just doing it to be grandstanders. They're doing it because they come from Tea Party districts that don't like Obamacare. And, and, and would rather see the whole this country. Is they, this is what they have to do to it, get elected. It, it, so. there, was a, there was a really great um, a really great clip I saw. There was a, I don't know if it was on MSNBC or CNN or one of those places where <coughs> – excuse me. <coughs> the guy actually asked one of the – excuse me, one of the congresswomen. <coughs> who was from a Tea Party district, said to him, said to her, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm paraphrasing or I'm trying to, I'm putting this in my own words. He asked her, he said, he said, do you hate, do, do, do you hate the Affordable Care Act more than you love your country? Just a very flat bottom line <laughs> question. And like, I mean, like she was expecting the normal kind of like trod and tread of like okay you know we're gonna go do this you know normal news interview nobody's gonna ask me any you know they're gonna throw me gonna, well no 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 I mean and, and this is what they do they're gonna throw them little softballs you know and they're gonna respond with their you know pre pre written responses and this guy was like okay well we're not gonna do that this time I'm gonna throw a curveball and she said sir what I think you're saying you know. Uh, what, I think that what you're saying is highly inappropriate and you're making a fool of yourself or something like that. But she couldn't respond to any of his charges. She had no way to defend herself at all. Why? Because uh, the guy, because he, he asked a legitimate question that she couldn't answer. Right. 
So yeah. and it's like, are you willing to uh, run the car off the cliff just because uh, you know you don't get to choose where you're stopping for food? That's what I yeah, right exactly. <laughs> you know, I mean, come on now, really, people, really, really. I mean, we can't. I, I, you know, and the other thing that I want to mention is the United States was founded on compromise. Okay, compromise. Oh yeah, compromise. We need to remember that word, compromise. Because people say no compromise. Well, then guess what? You're not. If you don't believe in compromise, then you don't believe in the founding of the United States. It's as simple as that. Because compromise is the foundation of the United States. Do you know how much the delegates from, from the thirteen colonies had to compromise in order to get the Articles of Confederation? Oh, yeah, the letters, up? the letters of those times back and forth oh, between God, people I, trying to convince. I mean, you know, it was you know, Jefferson and Madison. You know, the centralized government, centralized bank, and all of these oh, it was issues about you know the freedom of this and that. It's just an amazing mishmash of, but of personalities they, that went into forming. But what did they end up doing? They ended up compromising. They ended up compromising and coming up with something that they believed would work. Because they were intelligent enough, they were educated enough, they were enlightened enough to know that if they didn't compromise, nothing was going to get done. We don't know that today. They knew it in the 1780s. We don't know it in 2013. I think there's, you know, and this is, I'm just repeating a soundbite here, but it's something that I, I definitely have noticed for the last, you know, since, um, since Bush, George Bush II, um, that the Republican Party is really, really deteriorating. Um, the uh, people don't like bankers in the financial industry, which is one side of the Republican Party. They don't like Tea Partiers, which is another side of the Republican Party. They don't like racists and and, and homophobes and bigots, which is another side of the Republican Party. And they don't like anti-immigration people, which is another side of the Republican Party. So, what does the Republican Party have going for it other than? You know, family values and hating Obamacare. I mean, it's just they're just this relic. I mean, they're they're really a relic, and they're fragmenting, and they're they're coming apart. And uh, it's it's going to be interesting to see in the next ten twenty years what happens to the the conservative edge of America, because it's either going to be it's either going to go crazier, or it's going to have to come back in line with moderation and and the reality of the modern world. Which is that things can't always be um, you know, that conservative. I mean, something you know, that my, my way or the highway attitude. Something that Barry Goldwater said in the in the nineteen uh, in the nineteen sixties. He was like, "Look, these evangelicals and neocons get get control of this party." He says, "You know, this party's history." And then in the eighties, it happened. Is well, the, yeah, but now the neocons are trying to marginalize the Tea Partiers because the Tea Partiers are such a vocal minority. The neocons are like going, hey, what about us? But, well, you know, what about but what our, is not our, a vocal minority, is, <laughs> or sorry, but, 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 but what is a vocal and not a minority are the evangelical Christians, all of which are either Tea Partiers or, or just standard Republicans. And this is something that Frank Schaefer, who was, uh, who was the son of a former, of, of, of one of the people who began the evangelical movement, he, you know, totally left that behind him, uh, converted to Orthodox Christianity, and now actually, you know, writes books, you know, about how this industry, how this evangelical industry works. And uh, one of the things he said is that, you know, look, these people have whole, have hook, line, and sinker taking control of the Republican Party. 
they're pushing their views no matter what. They have a literalist interpretation of the Bible. They have a literal interpretation of everything. They're hardliners. There's no talking to them. There's no compromising with them. There's no um, trying to work with them. It, 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 it's it's just totally unmanageable. He said, and it's and it started in you know in the you know he he said it was going on in the eighties, the nineties. He said, and it's even worse now. And this is it's not going to stop <laughs> unless we do something about it. And the biggest problem is that these people, um, the evangelicals, they gain the, as they gain power, they also gain control over things like the Department of Education. Exactly. And they want to shut down the Department of Education, and they want you know people to be schooled in in Christian values and Bible theology, as opposed to you know secular you know mathematics and history and science, uh, which are the devil's work apparently. <laughs> right or whatever they. they so uh, you know point. it's it becomes really scary when you have a group like that that not only is ignorant. Um, but they they want everybody else to be ignorant too. They think education is the enemy. Yes, um, and that's and that's really sad because education is is really the only way that the individual has to make their own decisions. Um, and without education, they're pretty much at the mercy of, of uh, whoever's telling them what to do. So educate yourselves. Educate yourselves. Go to a library. Yeah, you know, and that's go not going to fly on the internet. It's because people can't educate themselves. Go educate yourself. You have if if you have a computer and you have access to the internet, uh, go out and educate yourself. Read these. Read things. Read the news. Read what's going on. Read the things you're interested in. Try to read about the literature. Get a broad view and come to your own conclusions. Don't buy things hook, line, and sinker. I did it for many years and it brought me nothing. But bullshit. And also, yeah, also the, the, the other thing that I like to say is, is always gut check what you read because it's easy to get your head, head spun up in these ideologies. Like, um, you know, the one and the one that I always come back to is this notion that the world is broken and we can fix it. Um, or, you know, uh, if the world would be a great better place if only if this group of people were marginalized or this group of people were educated or this group, you know, getting into your, getting into the, this ideological headspace of, uh, must this, that change responsibility is, 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 is sometimes self-defeating because there are so many things that you can look at the world and say, geez, this is wrong. Something needs to be done. Um, when really you should be looking locally at your own life and your own family and your own connections, you know, and it's funny, John Lear is the, is the, is the guru that I come back to <laughs> John Lear, the alien, alien, uh, conspiracy guest we had on uh, a few months ago said, don't pay attention, you know, to all of the stuff that's going on in wall street and in Congress and wars and everything. Just pay attention to making sure that your family and your loved ones are taken care of and that you're, you know, you're living a life that's not full of envy, hate and greed and jealousy. And, uh, it's a good message. Yes, it is a good message. Um, you know, and if you do find a cause that you're passionate about that you want to get involved in, that's, you know, I, I wholeheartedly support that. I don't want people to be, um, nihilists or, um, you know, Certists not, not, like not involved. But it's but there's also a self-defeating aspect to thinking that you are responsible for changing everything that's wrong about the world, and that is something that you need to check your ego at and just you know look at your own life. Like Michael Jackson said, start with the man in the mirror. 
Alrighty. And, uh, you know, it, it's really easy to get spun up into these ideological causes uh, when, when the actual reality that we live is pretty simple and basic, which is, you know, take care of yourself, educate yourself, make good decisions, have nurturing, loving relationships, etc. I agree. Yeah, I know. I mean, and, and that's really what, um, what, it, what it comes down to. So, you know, and, and think about the community a little more. Think about uh, the people who, who, who are around you, who live around you. Uh, and who who are immediately close to you, and uh, you know not only think about them, but think about the larger community. And this is something that Noam Chomsky said. He says, you know, we only care if our kid goes to school. We don't care if the kid down the street goes to school, but we need to care if the kid down the street goes to school. We 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 we, we I mean, we honestly do, because that's the only way that we're going to be able to create a society in which people are able to live together in some relative harmony is if we actually have the ability and the love in our hearts to care and to share that love with those in the community around us. And that's all we can do. Um, you know, can we, can we go out and save the world? Maybe there are a few people who can spread information that will help, you know, uh, prevent further conflicts and will help um, bring that type of, you know, nurturing relationship back to communities. And I, and I, and I encourage people to go out and do that, but you know, really, uh, but you know, there, there was, there was a, um, there was a global, um, global mind reprogramming enterprise that happened, you know, many hundreds of years ago when, Sailing technology was perfected. Perfected, the Catholic Church sent missionaries all over the world to spread their system, their their system, which included you know not only the, the Catholic religion but also the system of Western history, which was you know rationality, rationality, logic, literacy, um, the foundations of science, etc. And they did have a mission to go out and reform the world in their image. And, you know, we are still in the middle of that experiment. You know, it's still going on. And um, since that time, since the missionaries went out and set footholds all around the world where other Western, you know, they were basically landing at ports for Western, the spread of Western ideals around the world. Um, this, you know, the, the world has just become smaller and smaller and more integrated through common language and common technology and, and, and common morality that didn't exist before that time. And as much as we like to cast the Catholic Church as the bad guy, in those missionary settings. Um, and they did do many, many horrific acts in the course of, um, you know, colonizing and setting up missions in far flung parts of the world. Uh, those parts of the world that had, um, you know, a mission in them also thrived and became towns and cities and, and you know, places today that are, um, you know, major political powerhouses. So, um, without that, without that initial touch of education, the bringing of literacy and the good word, even though that good word was a very, very limited, the limited good word of you know the Bible, just building that foundation around the world 
um, was the core technology of what we call education today. I mean, that was education, was getting on a ship and taking your book, you know, hundreds of leagues across the sea to some people that had never seen words before and saying, these are words, here's what they say. And that's, you know, that education can be used for any purpose to transform the world into any, you know, idea. And it takes somebody like, you know, Karl Marx or John Smith or uh, Adam Smith, I mean, or, um, you know, uh, great philosophers to, to catch hold of, you know, even Ayn Rand, Rand, you know, as unlikely as it seems, she writes this, you know, science fiction story about, about uh, what are they called? Rationalists. Oh yeah. Atlas Shrugged, I think, is the name of yeah. The, Atlas Shrugged is the name. Was is, is the name of of one of the books there? Yeah. Yeah, and you know the, her ideas transform people, but Anne Rand would not be able to share her ideas with anybody unless those people were first educated and literate. Right. Exactly. Yes. And it's uh, it's it all starts it all starts there with what we take for granted in the United States and in the Western world. Education and literacy, um, foundation of all of our beliefs and so-called rationality, is really a state-imposed mind uh, form formation tool. Uh, and you know, we are we should be thankful that they're doing that because we would be lost. We would be lost without that sort of that sort of top-down instruction that teaches us how to think, teaches us how to learn. And um, the, uh, the the evangelicals don't don't have that same sense of you know they've lost the sense of that missionary sense. All they want to do is spread the word of God. They don't. It's not about spreading education and morality. It's about you know doing what we tell you. <laughs> do what we tell you now. Yeah. You know it's funny. Missionaries still have to go around the world. To different part to different tribes in you know remote areas of the Pacific or remote areas of Africa, remote areas of Asia and Indonesia, and say, you know, it's wrong to sexually abuse your children because there are some places where that morality just hasn't been imposed yet, and it's almost impossible to believe, but it's true. You know, morality is something that does not come built in. It, 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 you need to, you know, your culture needs to be up to the technological speed to have a morality that works for everybody. You know, I don't, I don't even know if we're there yet. I don't even know if there is a culture that that exists that the morality is correct for everybody. But I think we're we're getting pretty close. Yeah, and uh, you know, we'll see what happens in the next, uh, you know, twenty years. I mean, the fact that I mean, the fact that. In your state, New Jersey, just this week, gay people are allowed to get married. Yeah, and, and in uh, one of our global, um, you know, diametrically opposed superpowers, Russia, gay people are considered second-class citizens. You know, Ill- illegitimate and homosexual propaganda is illegal. So it's 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 weird. What we take for granted is what is the correct morality in other places is just considered, well, it's just out of just no way we could ever adopt that. I know that uh, some churches uh, were forced to to, to, to marry uh, people outside of their steps or something like that. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, I, I can't remember why 
But uh, that's... See, the morality that works for us and we take for granted, Eugene probably has a, moral, a moral system that has worked for him very well his whole life. So it's, it's, it, be, it becomes a little bit clearer for him to envision a way in which this moral system could be exported to the rest of the world you know, through some sort of psychedelic evangelicalism. But there's a lot of just groundwork that needs to be done first oh, before, that can, the, before that can even be a possibility. I mean, it's just even getting, you know, a group of 12, 20-somethings from the Berkeley campus together on on LSD to agree on something would be a challenge, <laughs> I would guess. You're probably right. I don't, <laughs> I, I, you know, I mean... I, no, and you, that's a very homogeneous group to choose from. You know, you would think that they would all have the same kind of middle-class liberal ideals, but probably not. There would probably be a lot of schisms in a group like that. Yeah, but you know, well, well, I, I, I am wait, I, I await, I await the research results. Now. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, wow, man, we really did a long program today—almost two hours. Yeah, it's been a couple of weeks, and we, you know, there's still a lot of comments we didn't get to yet. So, do you want to, you know, you want to go back to them for for a minute or two? No, we can we can do it. We can follow up on another show. All right, guys. Well, it looks like we're going to hop off the air now for everyone uh, because I think that we've taken a, an hour and forty five minutes of your time is enough to take up. So, <laughs> 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 thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Jake Kettle. As always, I hope everybody has a wonderful uh, morning, evening, or afternoon, depending on where where you're listening and when you're listening. Uh, you know, write to us, uh, and of course, with me as always is. Uh, author of uh, Psychedelic Information Theory and founder of DoseNation.com, James Kent. James, a pleasure as always. Yeah, thanks again, and uh, keep the comments coming, and we'll try to get to them. Yeah, well, we, 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 we love the feedback, and uh, we, we, love to, we love to discuss the feedback. So You can uh, follow us on Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash DoseNation. You can follow us on Twitter at Twitter.com forward slash DoseNation. In addition to that, you can follow us on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash dosenation. And we also have a YouTube channel, which uh, occasionally gets things uploaded to it, in which I may try to upload the podcast if I can find an easier edit- editing software. Uh, which, by the way, if anybody has uh, has a better uh, editing suite for Mac than Final Cut 10, uh, please let me know what that program might be, and you can contact us uh, if you want to with just general inquiries at contact. And that's at, a video editing. Yeah, video editing. Contact at dosenation dot com because I, as as many Mac users are familiar with, Final Cut Ten is not the greatest program. So, so um, yeah. So if you do find anything, please do let me know. And uh, as I said, uh, everyone, uh, you can uh, go on our website, click through with the Amazon ads, and buy your stuff through our website that really helps us out a lot we appreciate all the uh donations that that come through both uh, via paypal and of course the amazon affiliate credits that we get and uh, we appreciate all your continued support so james any final words no just thanks for listening yeah thanks for listening everybody have a good have a good day and we will see you all next week thanks for joining us have a good day